American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today in our Europe series, I'm joined again by my good friend Flag Taylor for yet another conversation on totalitarianism in cinema. We have already talked about writer-director couple Petr Jarkovsky and Jan Hrebik when we discussed Uchitelka, the 2016 movie The Teacher. It's very theatrical. It really takes place over one evening in one school. It's about the end of communism in Slovakia, about the education of children who would become the first generation of adults in a democratic modern world. Now we turn from the teacher to Divided We Fall, the 2000 movie that made Hrebek and Jarkovsky famous worldwide as the movie was nominated for the Oscar. Divided We Fall is a movie about the beginning of totalitarian tyranny, not the end. World War II in Czechoslovakia, it's about the Nazis and eventually the communists, and how uh, not a community, but one family, really. It's a movie about four people who go through these terrible years of World War II together. It's incredibly funny. I say incredibly because it's quite serious about World War II and the threat to life, to moral integrity, and the fear for the future of the nation as a whole. And yet, uh, Czech specialty, it is very funny and perhaps a lesson in the extent to which comedy is compatible with acknowledgement of a terrible history. Hrebek and Jarkovsky were director-writer couple throughout the 90s. They became very successful early on in the Czech Republic, won recognition and awards, but this was their breakout movie. They have since made others together, including The Teacher, our previous podcast, but I don't think they are sufficiently known worldwide and the cinema of Central Europe in regards to totalitarianism is not well known. This is a very timely moment for its discovery since we are much more worried about totalitarianism now than we have been since 1989. So it's a great moment to return to these concerns and the easiest way perhaps is through art through the dramatization of these great themes that one can also study in the works of political philosophers or of dissidents or of other important scholars doing historical research. Now, that said, Flag, you introduced me to Jan Hrebeik. In fact, you pointed me to this movie. I'm very glad that you have a chance to talk about it for the podcast, but I think it's all right that you should introduce the movie. Tell us how you got to know it and your thoughts on it. Sure, it's great to be back on the podcast, Titus. My, I first came across this film through my friend Marketa Goetz-Stankovich, who's a longtime professor of comparative literature at the University of Vancouver. She's long retired. She must be in her late 80s, if not 90 now. I asked her to contribute to my volume of essays on the lives of others, and a few of the essays do some comparisons to other films, and she recommended this film. And I think she recommended it because of her own biography. She's from Bohemia. She and her parents were able to emigrate to Canada, I think the very month that the communists came to power in 1948. This film clearly had some personal connections for her because her father was in Terezin during the war, Theresienstadt, the concentration camp that is spoken of in, in the movie. Her father then, I think at the end of the war, she told me, was able to walk home from Terezin. He was in some sort of medical quarantine and escaped the quarantine and got home and they knew that he was home. They had put in place some sort of knocking signal system so that, you know, when he knocked on the door, they knew it was him, but they couldn't believe it was him because they assumed that he had died. And those post-war years were very tumultuous. And she told me that one of the reasons that they decided to try to emigrate was that she and her family could hear the screams at night of the people that the Czech partisans were punishing. 
So the aftermath of the war was just too tough to stomach for her parents, and they decided to try to take the family to Canada. So she thought that there were some interesting connections between this film and the lives of others and the effect that totalitarianism can have on people's behavior and people's thinking about themselves and where their loyalties should lie and how one can escape or not escape personal responsibility. You know, I think she was right that this film is, as you said, it's very comic in places, in part due to the skill of the actor who plays the main character, Yosef but it also raises some very deep questions about moral responsibility and suffering and endurance. And so I highly recommend it to our audience. Indeed, the, the skill in the movie makes it a, a delight to watch, even though some of the passages are, of course, quite difficult. I would say that one way in which it differs from the teacher is that it is so strictly focused on one household, Yosef and Maria, husband and wife, on the man they take in, David, and of course, their strange friend, Horst. This theatrical feel, it's very intimate and at the same time gives great expanse to dialogue, the change of places in the rooms, to physical comedy, to suspense, all of it based on this very small location you very quickly grow used to. And of course, everything from facial expression and the alteration of tone is just intensely intimate in that sense. You see and hear and get to know and get used to these characters and therefore are much more surprised as the the plot changes because every 30 minutes you think you figure them out and it turns out that there's something more that's happening that there's some other trouble that comes along that reveals more about them kind of makes sense you have a grasp of these characters from very early on but at the same time it's still full of surprises because you're not there yet you haven't fully grasped what it is that the writer and director want to show you and I think that's supposed to make us realize to what extent humanity is endangered, but in certain ways preserved, going through the terrible things in the world war. So it's a deeply humanistic movie in that sense. Beyond that, I would say that the insistence on private life is also supposed to suggest that we should be much more skeptical of public statements and in a way of rumors Mm. are not quite public, not quite private, because people's motivations are harder to understand. And it is much easier for us to turn to ideology and a partisan stance than it is to enter into the secret councils of the heart, so to speak. What is it that really moved these people? What were their intentions? And yet, if you want to rescue, to some extent, the humanity of people caught in historical drama, that's absolutely necessary. And given that in modern times, our lives are not exactly ruled by a few great rulers, there's no prince or king or whoever who is responsible for us. We have, on the other hand, to take on this responsibility of figuring out what it is that does move people and where you might look for certain virtues, even if they are on a small scale rather than on the heroic scale. That, I think, also makes it somewhat more comic. It's not as tragic as it would be if you were to tell the story of Czechoslovakia in World War II, which would be grim. And therefore, I think it's not intended to replace history, but to correct a certain tendency in political history. It is a very necessary study, but it does tend to create a certain grimness in affairs and a certain inability to understand what people say in our grandfather's generation were like and what they went through. After all, this is World War II. The movie was made in 2000. Uh, many people who lived through the war were still alive. It was just 55 years from the end of the war. But in a way, it's a different world already. I would say several different worlds passed since communism was also already becoming hard to grasp and hard to understand how did this happen. In that sense, the movie is intended in correcting history to give us a deeper political appreciation of what it takes for people to get through drama.
what it takes, therefore, for us to understand any kind of historical continuity and maybe have a grasp of the national character, not so much of the regimes, since the experience of the 20th century is that the regimes come and go, incredibly violently, perhaps, but they do come and go, and the people are still there. Yeah, I'll give a brief overview of the plot. I think you put it well when you suggested that the film constantly upends the viewer's kind of settled expectations of where you are and what to expect from certain characters. So it takes some twists and turns that make it really, really interesting and a dramatic movie to watch. The movie, as you said, tells the story of this couple, Yosef and Marie. We're in some village in the borderlands of Bohemia, and the action of the movie takes place between 1943 and 1945, when you get the liberation of this area by the Soviet army. The filmmaker, Hrebek, he makes an interesting choice trying to set this story in a broader context by including these little snippets of scenes that stretch back and you get through the opening credits. You get three scenes set in 37, 39, 41 that show you the relationship between Yosef, this young man, David Wiener, who's a young Jew, whose family was fairly wealthy and owned some sort of manufacturing company. Yosef and his friend Horst Prohaska work with them. You see Horst, David, and Joseph in the countryside getting along well, you know, joking with one another. 39, you start to see the appropriation of the Wiener's property. And then 41, you see that many of the Wiener family have been shipped to Terezin, Theresienstadt, the concentration camp that's north of Prague. And then, of course, in 43, you see David coming back on the street. Joseph makes the decision to hide him in, in the cellar. You know, that's the action of the plot is Yosef and Marie making this decision to hide David, obviously keeping this a secret from the people in the village whom they can't be sure will sell them out. It turns out Horst, who's Yosef's friend, he has a German wife. He has the German name Horst, of course. So he, he turns out to be someone who takes advantage of his ethnic background and takes a job with the Nazis. Joseph, in turn, once he makes the decision to hide David, agrees to join Horst in working for the Nazis to help him conceal the fact that right, he might be doing something that he should not. The film really is about moral responsibility, as I said before, and gives you these contrasts between Joseph and Horst, between this other German man named Kepka who comes in and occupies the Wiener's home. And so the action of the film is watching this drama unfold as Joseph tries to keep this secret as best he can. Indeed, the decisive point is very early on. You see this meeting in the middle of the night at the old Wiener residence. Yosef meets David and he's shocked. He didn't know that this guy was still alive, much less that he had somehow returned to his family's old mansion. But in a split second, they recognize each other and they have a very brief conversation. And Yosef realizes that he has to take him in. Anything else is probably going to mean death for David. And although he is in a way divided against himself, he realizes this is a very dangerous thing to do. He takes him in and he hides him in his own pantry, which also doubles as a shelter in case of bombing, I guess. There's a lesson about that too. He says many people built these kinds of rooms. Indeed, he tells his Jewish friend, I helped your father build his in your home. A lot of chicks realized really bad times were going to come and you would need a place to hide. That emphasizes the need for secrecy and for private life in dangerous moments and says a lot about Czechs as a people. It's just a very quick moment. It all passes in 30 seconds. When you think about it, it says a lot about who these people are and also helps to explain to some extent why, although the danger is so great, Yosef is so quickly willing to take David in. 
Granted, they were friends, used to work for David's family, but that doesn't mean you owe somebody to risk your life. The simple fact that private life is, to some extent, still Czech, whereas public life is under the control of the Nazis, so that even the Czechs, when they look at one another, they want to see who is suspicious, who might be betraying his people by working for the Nazis and all sorts of other things that occur through the plot. You see that really the only place for humanity is in secrecy. And in that sense, very, very quickly, David becomes something like the conscience of not just Yosef, but his wife, Maria. They constantly fight about the fate of this young man. They constantly fight about the burden it puts on them and other things that are going on in their lives that are difficult to deal with. Above all, the fact that they've been married years and they have no children. Clearly, she wants children and kind of denies it. He denies that he wants children, but in fact, he probably wants children as well, we learn later on in the plot. But all of these things now take a more serious turn because one family argument, if it gets too loud, could lead to their secret being discovered. And in this case, it would mean their lives. So it's a very good device for dramatizing the conscience, the wrestling with motives and intentions and feelings and regrets and hopes and fears. Yeah, let me just add one one quick thing about Joseph, which I maybe didn't didn't emphasize enough in my initial summary. He is, I think I made I used the phrase he makes this decision to harbor David, but that might be even too strong language. It, like you said, it happens and so quickly in this single moment. I don't know how how much time he has to really think about it. It's something that he just seems to do. So that's the first point. And the second point, it's something that he seems to do almost despite himself, right? He comes across as very cynical, the way he speaks to his wife, like you said at the beginning of, about children, right? He says something like, I, I can't even imagine how anyone could make the choice to bring children into the world that we inhabit, right? So he's very uh, cynical and doesn't think it makes any sense even to try to perpetuate the, the human race in the face of what's what's happening. But his actions are always better than his speech. It, you, it's, it's sort of funny to listen to him talk because the way that he talks about himself is betrayed by what he does. So he's much more courageous than he gives himself credit for. It's almost like he, at the beginning of the movie, maybe the first, I don't know, half hour, 40 minutes or so, you're almost sort of giggling, you, you find his treatment of himself as comic because he's so much better than he's giving himself credit for. And, the, you know, the contrast with some of the other characters comes across right away. Um, I don't remember his name, but there's there's a man who sees David on the street after he's escaped from the concentration camp and made his way back. You know, David says something to him by name and the guy says, you have to get out of here Right. Well, you, you could, if, if you're seen here and people know that I saw you, this could mean the execution of the whole block, right? The Germans could decide to, to execute everyone on the street if they suspect that any one villager is involved with the harboring of this, of this one Jew. Um, and so he's, he turns out to be someone you don't admire too much. On the other hand, he's not wrong about what he says. Again, the contrast comes across with starkly with with Joseph um, and the way he treats David vis-a-vis these other characters. But also you can't help wonder why why Joseph doesn't kind of recognize his own decency more. Yeah, that's right. There's um, altogether a kind of suspicion of how moral our motives really are. And nobody shows that quite as clearly as Joseph because he's the one who's suspicious of his own motives. 
and uh, indeed uh, self-deprecating barely begins to uh, cover his attitude. You can say that partly that's because uh, life hasn't worked out for him. As much as he doesn't have a kid, he's disabled because uh, he helped build some stuff during the war, uh, some projects, and he got hit by, I guess, uh, a bomb or, or rather shrapnel from an explosion, and it destroyed his leg, and so now he's limping through life. And you wonder, what was it for? the meaninglessness of the kind of suffering that he personally went through, but of course of the war more broadly uh, would be enough to take any uh, intelligent man's convictions and shake the morality out of them, more or less. You're right that throughout the movie he he does the right thing, but he's constantly quite cynical about it. And uh, that would seem to be partly because he doesn't know that any of this is going to work. And because the risks he's taking might lead to bad things, and not just for himself, for his wife, for other people, he doesn't know if it's the right thing to do. The uncertainty and the danger are, are shake the, the certainty we have about more, the morality of our actions, since it's somehow part of morality that also things work out. We, we, morality has to be good for human beings, ultimately, otherwise it would be anti-human. And yet, uh, in, in the circumstances... It's very hard to believe that these things will work out. But without your moral principles, you don't even know what to do. With your moral principles, you can tell that you're doing very risky stuff and you might end up dead. Without them, uh, what other guy do you even have? It's not a good situation to be in. And so he constantly grumbles about the consequences of his actions because uh, of the danger he brings about. But at the same time, he can't do otherwise. So he's constantly quarreling with himself, as you say, his deeds speak against his words and give you this uh, a deeper portrait of who the guy is. He's, he's not committed to any kind of public anything. He just wants to get himself and his wife through the war, but he's not willing to do so in an immoral way. And especially when there's this kind of moment of life and death, uh, suddenly you see that his moral convictions are quite strong. Perhaps that's one reason why he needs to talk in this somewhat cynical manner. His convictions could run away with him. He might need to put a damper on things because you could say his speeches are always introducing circumstances, present realities that his heart might not want to acknowledge. That is to say all the danger and all the compromises that are necessary to survive in such a situation. He cannot be satisfied with himself because uh, the only ways to sort of solve the conflict between his deeds and his speeches would be either to do something heroic and get himself and his wife killed, possibly his neighbors, etc. Or on the other hand, to become not merely compromised, but corrupt and Mm. lose his soul. And so he somehow manages to live with the conflict instead. Yeah, the contrast with with Horst, I think is interesting. So Horst, again, is this this character who has this ethnically German wife. He clearly speaks speaks German. And so he clearly makes what's what seems to be like a conscious decision to join what he thinks is the winning side. In one of the opening scenes, you see him exulting in the movements of the German army, and he uses sausages on the table to talk about the movement of troops and how the, the Reich is going to have this great, great victory. And you're sort of repulsed at this point. Um, and he involves himself in the appropriation of the property of the of the Czech villagers for purposes of 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 the Germans who have now moved in moved into the village, so he's you know he's he's maybe repellent would be too strong 
but he he clearly makes these public compromises in an openly self-interested way sort of, he's sort of the opposite of joseph he's all public professions will will save me and it doesn't really matter if i believe this stuff uh, or not i should say too the the other plot element that we should get on the table that we haven't spoken about is uh, is this question of birth and and childbearing. So the movie opens as you as you said with with this acknowledgement that they can't seem to have children. It's not clear it's not clear why he he makes this public statement to well not public statement but he makes this statement to his wife that I, I don't I can't imagine bringing a child in this world but she clearly wants wants children. The plot twist that emerges very unexpectedly later in the film is when Horst, who clearly has a kind of crush on Marie, takes Marie on a, on a kind of lunch outing and eventually tries to rape her. And the only way that Marie can think of to, to stop this um, after she punches him is to say that she can't allow him to do it because she's expecting a child. She knows she's not pregnant, of course, but she says it to, to try to prevent him from from continuing with his efforts to rape her that then plot element is continued when we we learn near the end of the movie that the fate of the germans is is changing this guy kepka now has to move out of the wiener house his his youngest son has has been shot while trying to desert so he can't have this great house and so horst suggests that he this guy kepka move in with with Joseph and Marie. Um, and then Marie repeats the lie that she's pregnant, then saying, we need this extra room for this child that's coming. This is the first Joseph has heard of this lie. So he, he's standing there sort of stunned, but is smart enough to go along with the lie. And so the the way that they, you know, eventually they, they know that the, the lie is going to be found out because Joseph can't, he, we've since found out that he's sterile. So he's the reason why they can't have children. And so now they come up with the solution that David should impregnate Marie. And, and so this is this, this theme of, of childbirth and the possibility of a new world, right, comes, comes to the fore. And that, that, that's the plot twist that I think is most interesting and, and shocking, kind of really puts you back on your, your heels. When, when Marie is, you're, you're in that horrible scene when Horace is making these advances and eventually tries to, to, to rape her, you're just completely disgusted with Horst, of course. And then you're just shocked that Marie comes out with this lie because you think, oh my gosh, they can't possibly get out of this. And so it's a it's a great decision, I think, by Hrebeck to add this plot element. Uh, yeah, the, the going along through the drama of secrecy, lest your neighbors, lest the Nazis find out that you're harboring a Jew, that uh, brings a certain tension with it, but it doesn't really say anything about the broader issue that that concerns the the Czechs, uh, the national future really beyond the war. This is what the birth is about, after all. It's it's new life, it's a future, it's life that's untainted by the misery that the parents are suffering through. It's a hope. The the wife, uh, on the one hand, she, she has to try to defend herself that way, saying she's actually pregnant. But at the same time, Yosef, the husband, he goes to the doctor. He's been pushed to it, so to speak. And he does want to go to the doctor and be tested to find out, is he or is he not sterile? And so you can see that it's actually weighing on him too. Although he had denied it before, you could say that there's nothing in 
the, the drama of the war that moves him in this direction. It's him. It's, uh, it's something that's been on his mind and he accepts to work for the Germans in some minor capacity in order, as you said, to hide the fact that he's doing something uh, anti-German. But that compromise once made also opens this possibility of going to visit a German doctor. And uh, there's this grim irony that the, the doctor is famous for sterilizations. And it turns out that here's a man he doesn't even need to bother to sterilize because he's sterile. And so somehow the, the, the notion of birth is over against this problem. It was of the essence of the Nazi war plan to sterilize entire populations and then to execute entire populations, to put an end to races, no more birth. And so it has some kind of symbolic importance for the war as a whole and for the Czech nation in particular, that they survived, they lived. That means new life came into this world. Then there is also this other aspect of it that uh, is, is incredibly comic, that they're all very embarrassed of themselves, but it is the husband to be cuckolded, Joseph, who is the one who keeps insisting that, no, David, uh, who is, is a very meek character, gaunt, as you might expect somebody who survived the concentration camp, shell-shocked, I guess. Uh, and then on the other hand, his wife, who is a, a fairly strong and determined woman, but uh, for that very reason, starts crying and is more than embarrassed by the, the problem they have gotten themselves into. And the solution he is not merely contemplating, but more or less forcing on them. And of course, it's also a theological joke that Joseph and Mary are going to have a child, but it's not Joseph's child. He's cuckolded. Uh, you may look at this in a more Christian light. You may look at it in an, uh, in, in, in an atheistic light and um, make light of the Christian story of the nativity. But that's obviously what's at stake there. Especially because, again, it doesn't really have anything to do with what was happening in the story prior to that moment. But however you look at it, the importance of the symbol is that it would not be enough for the Czechs to have kids, to have a future. They would also have to have a faith, and they would have to have some kind of miracle. That is to say, there's got to be something that guarantees that that birth is not going to be... I mean, people have been born since uh, who knows when... And uh, it didn't prevent things like world wars from happening and horror. Why would this world uh, new birth be any better? It, it relies on a certain hope in divine providence. And uh, so that somehow is, is what, what underlies what's going on in the story and the importance of this Jewish man that they are harboring and who turns out to be necessary to their salvation more than once. So that, that again, is, is how the plot works. There are these twists and the defenseless uh, Jewish man who escaped the concentration camp only to be locked in another cell. He, he turns out to be, in fact, uh, the condition and then the cause of their salvation later on. That's uh, somehow part of why the movie is called what it's called. We must help each other. The English translation for baffling reasons is divided with fall, as you said, but that's not what it means. There's this phrase that they keep using in the movie, and whenever you, it appears we must help each other, there's something more than a little uh, disturbing about it, partly because of the self-interest of the people saying that, partly because uh, it, it's just hard to take on, on its face. Given the terrible worst circumstances, what mutual help can there be? What mutual good can there be? But in the order of the plot, by the introduction of this supernatural suggestion, there, there in fact turns out to be a way for people to help each other. And again, that's something that maybe the humanism of the plot in some sense does depend on a deeper Christian hope, because somehow all of these people will have to live with each other after the war. This is not a story about uh, taking revenge on the 
collaborators or, or, or rejoicing the destruction of the oppressors and so on and so forth because that doesn't really tell the victims uh, if they survive how to deal with their, their own affairs. So victory in the narrow sense might not be enough. It would have to perhaps be a victory of a higher character. And maybe that emerges best through comparison with this character, Horst. He's uh, he's a German in these Czech lands, and he, he complains that he's always been maltreated and that people used to mock him as Wurst. Well, he's mocking them now. He's the guy who gets the goods. He, he's the guy who's got coffee, who's got sausage, who's got all sorts of goods that other people don't get given the deprivation of the war and the particular humiliations that people suffer from under Nazi rule. So he feels like he's taken revenge on people. He has taken his resentment out, but also his envy. And part of, uh, you know, to some extent, Horst is funny, and to some extent, he tries to be a friend, but he also tries to rape his wife's friend, uh, his, his friend's wife. And uh, there you see what it might mean for people to try to just settle their scores. He's not a Nazi. He doesn't believe in any of this nonsense. He, he can't even love his own wife anymore because she's a Nazi. Uh, and, and that somehow says something good about his character. But on the other hand, you see that this need to settle scores, he was the least of people in the in, in the uh, workshop that the Jewish family owned. And now he's running. He's very proud of himself for that. This need to settle scores, to come out on top when you are on the bottom, to uh, avenge your resentments, this is what it leads to, to a very petty man whose only redeeming quality is that in failing to betray his friend and rape his wife, he has a a strange chance to to be redeemed by them. The, The fact that he ends up delivering the Marie's baby, and then indeed he's saved from a, a jail cell where the communists' uh, partisans are, are keep the people they're about to shoot by Yosef, who knows what Horst has done, again points out that this might you might need something that goes beyond justice. And, and I mean, if, if, if a defensive war isn't just, it's hard to find anything that is just. But even with justice, this might not be enough. You might need some kind of mercy. And, uh, and so perhaps that's why you need to take a higher view of things. And as you mentioned, there's somebody even worse than Horst, which is Kepke, the German guy who takes over the mansion of the Jews. And he is quite proud of his sons who are dying for the German cause. But uh, as, as things go by... Uh, there's less and less to be proud of and more and more to fear. And his sons are dead and he's losing his mind over it. And eventually he sends off his teenage son to war. In the desperate uh, months of 45, this is true. Germans sent a lot of teenagers to fight. Well, and he, I mean, I would add, just to, just add that teenager might even be generous. I mean, from the looks of that boy, he couldn't be more than 12. Rebek wants to say this seems like an odd, <laughs> an odd choice to send this this young this young boy i mean he's a boy really he's not yeah certainly and uh, his his father salutes him with the heil hitler but then picks him up in his arms and kisses him there's all the tension you you can possibly uh, put in things in 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 between those two gestures but he sends him off to, to to war and the boy runs in fear and it's a deserter he gets shot and his family is dishonored and Kepke goes mad. Then you see a certain kind of public profession, a certain kind of political commitment. This is what it could lead to. Yeah. You just, wipe out just all of private life, right? You know, right. Just, saves his private life. This guy who is such a boss for the Germans loses everything, including his sanity. 
just to add to your to your point on the emphasis on private being kind of the only place that's trustworthy one one quick point about Horst as as repellent as he is he also makes two key decisions during the course of the of the film that that at least partially redeem him right initially um you know he he takes this job and is appropriating the property of of his fellow villagers and he's exulting in German victories and all of this. And he's associated with this guy, Kepka, who's terrible. And so you can see that the villagers look at him with disgust. But at one point in the, in the film, he leans down to pick something up off the street and he, and he hears through the rain gutter, Marie speaking French, and she is being assisted in her French lessons by David. And it's never made clear that Horst explicitly knows that this is a Jew, but he certainly knows from then on that something untoward is going on in that in that flat but he never speaks of it to to anyone and so um that's one important moment in in his favor and then secondly when the germans are on their heels this this is probably spring early winter spring 1945 later in the movie the germans are panicking they're clearly their forces are retreating in the in the area and so they're going through confiscating any food that they can get you know and punishing people because they're angry and they're going into all the flats on the street and they're about to enter joseph and marie's flat if they did we can assume they they probably would have found david and and horse says you know, this is uh, a citizen of the Reich lives here, you know, move it along. So that's the second time he he kind of saves them. And so for all his kind of moral repugnance, including the attempted rape, right, he, he does do at least two things that really save, save his two friends, the and 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 I guess the scene that really struck me as interesting is important. It's early in the film, after Joseph makes the decision uh, to work for the the collaborators, Horst looks at Joseph and says, "You you have to learn to adjust your face to give this expression of loyalty." <laughs> and he gives, and I mean, the the facial expression that Horst gives is brilliant because it's not the facial expression of a militant enthusiast. What what I saw, it's the facial expression of just utter vacancy. <laughs> <laughs> right and so it's, yeah, it's kind exactly. of a comic it's, it's a comic moment um because you you're like you don't you don't look loyal you look stupid <laughs> but and then you see joseph try to adjust his face and uh and horse looks at him and says yes yes that's that's what i'm after and so this whole thing right is again as you as you emphasize it's not because he's a nazi he's just trying to adjust his behavior to do what he can to to survive and and maybe that's Maybe that's not enough and enables him or not enables, but it doesn't prevent him from doing utterly repellent stuff like trying to rape the the wife of his best friend. But um, but you can you can see his the difficult calculations that he's gone through in his own mind. And, and as you alluded to, he, he seems to be to find his own wife distasteful because she wants to move back to Germany. Right. And he's like, I don't want to move back to Germany. Who would want to live in Germany? So. He's just, yeah, but the more I think about it, the more interesting character Horst is. Yeah, there is something human about him because in his petty way, Horst embodies a principle of love of one's own. He saves his friends' lives because they're his friends. It's not a matter of principle. There's no reason to think he'd have done the same for their neighbors, but he does do it for them. 
And indeed, he tries to instruct Yosef into how to pretend to be part of the Nazis. The best he can come up with is indeed a blank stare. But since that avoids any defiance and it avoids the confrontational character of intelligence, it's actually exactly right. It's more obviously possible for a stupid person like Horst than for an intelligent person like Yosef. But that only makes it even more necessary for an intelligent person to dissimulate, to hide. Yosef is somewhat cynical, and that's a dangerous quality to have under a tyranny. Mocking a tyrant or the tyranny or the soldiery or what have you, that is unsafe at the best of times. So in that sense, Horst is trying to be protective of his friend, and his advice is not at all bad. Indeed, he says he doesn't want to leave Bohemia because for better or worse, that's all he knows. That's his place. He wants to stay there. Uh, of course, his conviction that the Germans are going to win is also shaken gradually. He's much less confident that after the war, it would be really great to be in Germany. But of course, also, would it be great for collaborators like him to be in Czechoslovakia? That is the other danger. And he's quite a fearful guy, tyrannic when he can be, because he caricatures a certain principle of justice, which we can state theoretically as help your friends harm your enemies. That requires a certain eulogy of strength. This is, you could say, why he can't help himself but tries to rape his friend's wife. He thinks, sure, they're friends, but he's the stronger of the two. And his friend depends on him for all these things that he brings. And so he deserves something in return. He doesn't deserve just to be mocked by his friend. It doesn't occur to him that his strength is not real and he might be in need of salvation himself soon enough. He's very narrow-minded, but it's a character of that principle of love of one's own that issues in the politics of helping your friends and harming your enemies, without which no community can survive. You have to defend yourself. Yosef is comparatively much more contemplative, much more intelligent, but it makes him cynical and also paralyzed. Horst is not wrong to complain that Yosef does nothing. And doing nothing seems safe to an extent, but only to the extent to which the tyranny allows you to do nothing, and of course to the extent to which your community allows you to do nothing. This sort of apolitical attitude is doomed, actually. Yeah, because and it's and it, we should say too. Uh, now that I think about it, that important that important. I, I emphasize the the initial choice to to harbor. David really isn't a choice. I don't think the decision to join Horst in this job appropriating property that is more of a decision an actual decision and it's and it's his wife that pushes him in that direction she's she's the one who says well if it's going to help you enable enable you to to hide the fact that we're harboring this jew then maybe you should you should do it but you know his his moral compass doesn't want any compromise any involvement with these with these nazis um, and then the, you can sort of see the importance of that choice and the the mark it leaves on on him later in the movie when he's he walks up to a woman who lives across the street from him who he sees I think when he comes out of the the doctor's office and he says he, he's trying to convince her that his public actions in with with his involvement with the Nazis doesn't really reflect who he is, right? So he's you know he's saying I'm not as bad as you think I am, right? I'll tell you why later. And and right as he finishes this, the the Nazi guy who he had helped early in the movie fixes car comes by and says, "Hey, old friend, you know, good to, good to see you." So of course his efforts to denazify himself completely completely fail. Um, but it just shows you the I think that the film loves to play with this idea of the the problematic nature of public professions, right, in the context of of totalitarianism. And the, you know, the insufficiency of what looked to be kind of self-evident loyalties, right? And, and 
you could see it took a long time for checks to to wrestle with this legacy right lots of people criticized hovel when he makes the decision in the 90s to apologize for the expulsion of the of the germans right and and you can see that that anger comes out um at the at the end of the film when when the czech partisans and and communists are you know going around drawing swastikas on people's back horsed horsed among them and you know you wonder whether all the people who they've rounded up and grouped in this grouped in this kind of makeshift prison you know really deserve it and of course that you know this is the moment when when Joseph identifies Horst as a doctor so he can help help save his his wife so yeah that that aspect of kind of the post-war difficulty of navigating this this moral universe is as as you mentioned it's going to be a tough tough few years for Czechs. Yes, indeed. Uh, the, the scene to which you alluded to when Yosef helps a Nazi is a very good example uh, of this problem. He's, at first, he only takes his Jewish former co-worker, or rather the son of his boss, in for, on, on a short-term basis, the, because the man says, I have a friend, I'm supposed to meet him. We're supposed to mm. run away together. I'm just here to get some of the family property, some jewels to run away with. So uh, Yosef uh, borrows a car from Horst and uh, puts uh, David uh, in the trunk and drives him to the forest where he's supposed to meet his friend who doesn't show up. And one is left to think it's probably because he's never going to show up ever. It's It happened. And uh, David, nevertheless, is resolute. He's already escaped the concentration camp. So he wants to go in the rain in the forest by himself. And uh, Yosef just can't fathom that. And then, again, by necessity, it's, it's, the circumstances are so terrible, he just takes him in and says, get back in the trunk, we'll, uh, we'll get back into town. And uh, as, as they try to get back to their little town, uh, they're stopped by Germans who need help. They need help with a wrench. And uh, Yosef realizes that the quickest way to save uh, the Jewish fellow is to help the Nazis. And so he helps them get on their way. He's very polite and uh, quick with a wrench. And uh, uh, that's how they get out of it. But indeed, it comes to bite him in the back. And on a broader level, there is uh, his neighbor that you mentioned, the man at the, in the beginning, Frantishek, who sees the Jew and calls, uh, calls out to the soldiers, hey, hey, there's a Jew, there's a Jew. And the soldiers don't want to come. They didn't hear him. They're going the other way. But uh, that, that's who František is. In fear for his own neighborhood and himself, he denounces. But he later sees the, that Yosef uh, has accepted to work for the collaborators. And uh, at the end, he marks Yosef as a collaborator for the sake of the communists who are looking for people to murder. Barely saved by the fact that he had a Jew hidden. The communist very cynically comments, everybody had the Jew or a partisan hidden, it turns out these days. Everybody was innocent. Everybody was actually heroic secretly. He's, he's quite cynical about this stuff in the kind of phrase that one would have expected from Yosef himself at an earlier part of the movie. But in this case, they really did have uh, this uh, uh, Jewish guy hiding in their pantry and who therefore saves them from execution by communists. And, uh, and, and uh, at the end, it's the Jewish guy who sort of judges these people summarily. He says, Horst knew about me all along. He brought me food. He's a good guy. He's a decent guy. He's one of us. And, but he also has an exchange of glances with František, who had been the man who denounced him and who is still denouncing people. 
not because he had any high moral standing, but because he is very moralistic. Why is he so moralistic? Exactly for the reason he said he is afraid that he himself will be punished. If he doesn't punish somebody else, he himself will get punished. And that is not far from the principle that Horst himself follows. You have to help your friends harm your enemy. Somebody's going to get hurt and it will yeah. be them, not you. And so you see both on the partisan and the collaboration side, this dangerous moralism that comes from fear, even from a tinge of despair, and that uh, shows up in trying to hurt other people in as public and authoritative a manner as possible, lest you yourself be hurt instead. It's the uncertainty, the uncertainty that paralyzes Yosef, drives these people, the horse and this frantic to even more dangerous things. Uh, since the movie is so much about private life, private life under Nazism, private life under communism, uh, private life during the war and regime change, it reveals so much of the fears and the uncertainties and the dangers to morality, how people who are not bad uh, in ordinary times turn out to be bad when, when the times become extreme. This is the philosophic remark Yosef makes to David at the beginning. Things have changed. You can't trust your neighbors these days. You'd be surprised what, what people can be brought to do. And he's saying this to this Jewish guy who just got out of Theresian stuff. I don't think he'd be surprised, Yosef. <laughs> But he is uh, saying what he himself has learned with the little misery of Dr. Yeah, doesn't David say something in reply like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised by any of that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so the movie tries to show how uh, compromising the situation really is morally, not least of all, precisely as you suggested in the case of Havel, to, so that people become able to admit some of the dark truths about themselves rather than try to take them out as vengeance on somebody else. It's, it's supposed to be a corrective to the necessary demands of justice, which could make us too cruel. This is why yeah. I said that to some extent, it's a very intellectual thing, hence the protagonist Yosef, and to some extent, it appeals to Christianity, hence uh, the, 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 the Jewish hope and uh, the Yosef and Mary couple. Yeah, the liber- so-called liberation at the end, right, is... is- treated by Hrebek not not really as a as a liberation but I would even say as a kind of continuation of of Nazi rule almost right I mean it's it's really a kind of dark dark portrayal of what you know must have felt like an actual liberation for many people but and I love the scene that you that you mentioned with David and Frantisek are sitting on a on a couch in the living room next to one another Frantisek has this armband that suggests that he was a a resistance fighter and it's almost like he's trying to hide it from <laughs> from David that he's so he's so ashamed and you know Frantisek is this character too that has somehow managed to find a way to to survive and you know not get caught up with with any of the the authorities but you can see like his his inaction his efforts to blend in have kind of compromised him in a deep i think the film suggests in a, in a very deep way like he's a pretty you're almost more repulsed by him than you are horsed in a, in a funny way yeah there's a lot to be said for the fact that there are two alternatives to how you might become corrupt and it reveals that it's the, the situation is a lot more unpleasant than people would admit and this is not the kind of problem people could have dealt with in 1945 when events were cataclysmic But afterwards, when you try to understand what happened, this sort of sophisticated judgment about people's private motivations makes a lot more sense. And in a way, it's necessary simply to be able to understand what happened seriously 
rather than reduce it to yet another slogan. In the first part of the movie, Horst and Yosef keep badgering each other about who's a hero and how cynical they both are in certain ways about heroism, if for somewhat different reasons. Horst is a fairly moral guy, but he embodies the morality of politics. Yosef is, has much more moral spine, but on the other hand, his um, reasoning is more or less amoral. He doesn't want to hurt anybody, but he doesn't subscribe to any politics, so to speak. He doesn't subscribe to any principle that would articulate the community. He just bickers. And uh, because of that, both of them can be anti-heroism. But for that reason also, they're both, so to speak, humble enough that they're happy to have survived. And they realize they owe each other's lives. Uh, at the different moments, they save each other's lives. And uh, they're not uh, any less at odds and ends with each other. But they realize that you still have to save the other guy's life. It's, somehow, it's, it's, it's important to say that these are the people you know, to make sure that there's something left of your own humanity, that you don't look at other people as disposable, much less start pointing fingers like František does, starts, starts you know, wanting to have people executed on his authority, that uh, he pretended to be obedient to the Nazis and he was, and now he's pretending to be obedient to the uh, communists would be somewhat despicable, but not impossible to understand. But pointing fingers at people to be executed shows how this turns into madness, how fear turns into madness, and uh, cowardice turns to violence and even a kind of ruthlessness. And indeed, it needs chastising as quietly as possible in the circumstances. But as you said, as a man who's quite ashamed of himself. And, uh, and so this complexity of motives in the story, I think, is supposed to not just explain why did things happen that way, but also to, to dampen some of the moral judgments and maybe also some of the hopes. You know, it's a shocking thing, right? This is a movie made in 2000 that essentially tells people that collaboration with the Nazis wasn't always so bad, you know? And that, that is a very shocking thing to say. Europe has abandoned Christianity, has abandoned morality, broadly speaking. But, but if you call somebody a Nazi, even more than in America, it's catastrophic. Many European countries ban Nazi speech. Of course, Nazi parties are banned. It's the only thing people really believe in. And, and so the power uh, of that symbol is uh, what Hrebek uh, and Markovsky are aiming at. They, they, they want to show that it's not something people should be so moralistic about because it gives them, like with František, it gives them an unearned confidence and an eagerness even to blame other people and to punish other people. Yeah, I think that's right. And I would maybe add just one one thought in, in support of, of that point and maybe make a little more concrete what I think Hrebeck might be up to. Maybe what he's after too is to remind the audience of the kind of necessary concreteness of all moral choice and moral action, right? It's very, it's very hard to abstract and impose general moral rules, especially in the conditions that are as, as strange and, and difficult as, you know, the clashing of totalitarianisms and in World War II. So, yeah, I, th I think that's, that's gotta be part of what what he's after. I like, I like that point about the easy, easy moralism of being anti, anti-Nazi. And I mean, it's so obvious as to be a kind of truism, but 
I think you're right. Maybe he's saying, well, let's let's step back and and think through what it what it might have meant to live through this stuff. And and maybe maybe we can make Horst and, and Frontishek and even Kepka understandable. Yeah, that's partly that's just a necessity, a, a serious study of human nature, a serious study of society, a serious study of politics would have to explain the motives, would have to give a, a convincing causal account of what happened. But uh, but we don't have such things. Just say, well, uh, these people, they're Nazis and they're bad. Well, first of all, that, 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 so to speak, goes against the way we judge things. Our lives are largely private lives. We don't live for the sake of a party or a political cause or a political leader. We don't identify with these things such that they consume our lives. Our lives are largely private lives. And therefore, we have to investigate our motives and we have to investigate how massive political events of a public character affect our private lives. Uh, you can't, usually, you can't really blame people, except yeah. in the sense that they are passively consenting. Because their lives are private rather than public. And this is forgotten for the strict purpose of calling people fascists or Nazis or so forth and to treat these things as absolute evils. And then, of course, you know, it, one should never forget that the, the kind of people who like to blame other people as Nazis are still to this day making excuses for communists. Terror that was so long lived that it swallowed up generation after generation and put up hecatomb after hecatomb, untold millions. But that's easily excusable, it turns out. You have right. to start thinking in a more complex way about the problems of, I don't know what. But they never take that attitude to the Nazis. Right. Now, one should be against tyranny in principle. And one should uh, protect political freedom in principle. But uh, blaming the ordinary losers. And that's, and I guess I would, I would add too that the, it's the, the greatness and ambition of, of Rebek comes out because it doesn't, what you've just been emphasizing, you know, never, never descends even close to a kind of relativism or non-judgmentalism, right? The the evil evil nature of the Nazi enterprise is on full display throughout the movie, sometimes more explicitly than others. But two moments in particular, you've already alluded to the to the statement um, about mass, you know, sterilization, and then I think the most chilling moment of the film is is when david recounts what happened to his sister in in at a camp in poland right and we we learn that his sister was offered to be a, a capo meaning a kind of jewish guard that would keep the prisoners in line and in exchange right they would probably get better food and and housing essentially a way to kind of guarantee your your life the bad news is right you would have had to do all sorts of horrible things to your fellow jews but the the nazis said she could only be a capo if she beat her parents to death and david says that her parents in fact pleaded with the daughter to do it so it's you know unimaginable cruelty right on a scale that you just don't <laughs> you don't see very often in the 20th century as as horrible as it is so again it's not like Hrebeck is saying yeah the nazis you know weren't as bad as you thought no they're as bad as you thought but still right think through the the moral choices that had to be made in those in those circumstances and maybe things aren't as as easy as you think they are because after all all of these places were occupied by the nazis by the soviets or by both you can't damn everybody for a communist or a Nazi. They were just occupied. A lot of the collaboration, although cowardly, although unmanly, is not impossible to understand. And under the circumstances, 
it was uh, close to inevitable. There's some room for private life, there's some room for humanity left, but there's not much. Partly, I think that's why Krebek and Markovsky are so intent through the writing and the dramatization to show you there was some humanity in their lives, okay? The squeezed as they were to the limit, the, there were people desperately trying to find one human thing to which to hold on as is good and in a way even sacred something that you could not possibly transgress against. And that's that's what the movie is about, really. And then I think he's suggesting that that's a much better basis for national community, for morality, even for a kind of European peace, than this kind of notion that is at the core of the European Union, which is you either do whatever they tell you in Brussels or you're a Nazi. You either uh, approve all these things or you're a Nazi. You either have more EU or it's going to be World War Three. It's not just that the moral blackmail is perpetrated essentially by cowards. These are pathetic people, people going around calling people Nazis never fought the real Nazis. Indeed, they're in the business of calling the people who fought the real Nazis Nazis. But, but even if they had any moral standing to make any of these claims, it would be basing a community on this kind of horror. Mm-hmm. It goes to the greatest extent possible for storytelling to suggest that community should be based in something else should be some some kind of mutual forgiveness for mutual help and also some hope that uh, there will be moral innocence ahead. To the extent possible for human beings, there are things to be hopeful about. And you're right, I think it's very important that the really disturbing stuff comes at the beginning to set the, 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 the scene and to tell you what your moral hopes should be. Uh, your, Partly, I would say one reason people are so moralistic in our times, they're very hysterical about certain moral claims. In Europe, it's primarily environmentalism. This is the, what has replaced Christianity as a religion. Elites in Europe believe in one thing, and it's the environment, and they fear one thing, which is global warming. And they don't even realize that that's inhuman, because it's all they can have by way of morality. It doesn't occur to them that this this uh, that comes from the fact that they simply have too high a hope life is a lot harder than people realize and uh, in a way uh, Rebecca and Markovsky are pointing out that we've already forgotten uh, this is a movie made by Czechs for Czechs say more broadly for Europeans people who have suffered from the Nazis and communists and who would know these things but perhaps more broadly for anybody intelligent sensitive and interested but it's also there because it's 2011 years after the Berlin Wall fell people are already forgetting people have an insanely high hopes of what society can be, of what the situation can be. Uh, whereas, in fact, the, the human situation is often terrible, rarely as terrible as World War II, but mm-hmm. often terrible. And uh, therefore, people's hopes should be more modest. In a, in a shocking way, what you see in, in, in the story you recounted about the family is the self-destruction of morality. Each part wants to sacrifice for the sake of the other, and all end up sacrificed. They stayed pure, but there was no survival. And so there's this question, will morality ever work? You have to accept in those cases where that's possible and it's necessary, certain compromise. Mm-hmm. Practical affairs will always require compromises. And in some cases, the compromises are shocking. But you also have to look to see were these actions compromises in the name of saving something of humanity or were they not? You'd have to give people the benefit of the doubt, but as the story does, investigate their motives. Is there something redeemable in this? Is this? Is there something that proves there's some good things in humanity? After all, that you can understand principles of political organization, of family, of personal loyalty, friendships, so on and so forth. Those are much more modest than the 
than the laudatory and the hysterical denunciations of our times or of those times. But in being modest, they are also a lot more serious, which I think is why when we see these characters, we, we spend two hours with them and we become convinced that it's pretty plausible. This is a better account of what human beings really go through. It's never shrill, but it's convincing. Titus, do you have any opinions on Krebeck's choice of the kind of scope or mechanics of, of telling the story? I was just thinking that the alternative to the way that he approached telling the story maybe is, is Polakovsky's Cold War, where he's, he's telling similar story about moral responsibility, but the moments that are explored in each time frame are, I guess, more evenly divided, right? So there's a 48 segment, there's a early 50s segment, there's a later segment. And, and so I'm just wondering what you, what you think, why Hrebek decided not to, to do that and sort of, you know, he could have given you for example, a much fuller picture of the of the Wiener family in 1937 and 1939, and maybe that would have been made made the film more weighty and interesting because you're really invested in not that you're not invested in David, but to the extent that you know him better and his family better, you would have maybe have been more shocked by his fate. But he doesn't do that, right? As I as I mentioned at the beginning in my sort of plot summary, right? The 37, 39, 41. All of that is handled in the in the span of what probably six or seven minutes as the opening credits unroll. So I don't know any any just thoughts on on how he handles the the scope of the of the story and why he kind of telescopes that beginning part so much. I think you're absolutely right. This is a very important question about the structure of the storytelling. So altogether, it is in three parts. There's this brief introduction that leads us to the war. Most of the movie takes place in the year 1943. And then we skip from the beginning to the end of the pregnancy, which is also the end of the war. And I think the first one is so short for two reasons. One of them, the plight of the Jews in Europe has been documented and monumentalized to the extent to which monuments can do that and taught in schools and so on and so forth. So it doesn't need dwelling on. Mm. And in a way, I suppose it would end up being the story. So it's treated fairly briefly as a story of the descent of the Czechoslovaks into tyranny and abjection and the person of that František fellow especially. And most of the movie is about this turning point in the war. There's a kind of joke about it. You mentioned that Horst, the unbelieving Nazi collaborator, he tries to explain what's happening on the Eastern Front by, so to speak, a battle of a plate and a string of sausages. The string of sausages are the Reich's forces. And it doesn't seem to occur to him that when he prepares to eat them at the end, he tears the sausages apart from the strings and says, these are the Germans, and these are the Italians, and these are volunteers from Spain. Spain. He's tearing them apart and he's going to eat them. The Germans are losing. This is 1943. There's not going to be German offensives on the Eastern Front. Yeah, he mentioned Stalingrad. Yeah, exactly. The Russians are coming. The tide of the war has turned, really. That therefore forces the question, what will there be when the Soviets destroy the Germans in the East? Who will these people be, these Czechoslovaks? What will come of them once the occupation of the Nazis is over? What's going to be left? Somehow, I think most of the movie focuses on that issue. Will there be anything moral, humane, something that you could be proud of or prove of left on the basis of which people could build? And of course, also the end of the movie 1945 has to be short for similar reasons. Not that people talk about communism the way they do about Nazism, far from it. It's largely swept under the rug and it's a damn shame. 
but it would, on the one hand, end up being the story how the Czechoslovaks escaped one tyranny only to be stuck with another, and how high hopes in, in some kind of popular freedom turned into a terror state and showed trials, and eventually this evil oligarchic and bureaucratic tyranny that's trying to suck the souls out of people without killing them, that would end up being the story. So you have to be quite discreet and only show the minimum of violence of 1945 and the dangers of communism. At either end, there's a danger that the Czechs will be forgotten. And this is, first of all, a movie made by Czech writers and directors and cast for the sake of Czech national memory, uh, wrestling with the past that might help them understand themselves better and have a more serious grounding for themselves as a political community. So mostly it has to focus on this turning point in the war when it's plausible that they'll get rid of the Nazis, but they have to ask themselves, who will they be? How will they get through this stuff? And will they be able to deal with what we know is coming? That's part of the irony of the movie, that the liberation is to some extent presented as a good thing because to some extent it was. But we all know that 45 is not the end of tyranny in Czechoslovakia. These people are not going to be happy and free now. What's coming is going to be 40 years of horror. That by itself, I think, is why it's not enough to have a child. It somehow has to be tied up with Jesus. The hope that will get people through would probably have to have a deeper meaning than something like, hey, we got revenge on the Nazis. Yeah. Nazis are evil, but they lost. It's not enough. Yeah, I think that's true. And yeah, as I said, I think that the liberation is handled not really as a liberation, but it's, you know, similar ugliness to what we've already witnessed in the movie. So. Yeah, and I think partly the solidarity between people who betrayed each other before. There was a lot of ill will between these people. There were a lot of ill deeds. But in a certain way, they have to be solidary with each other. How is that possible? Well, it's because they traded one tyranny for another. Yeah, well, and, and solidarity. This one too. Right, solidarity based on hatred is not an enduring kind of solidarity. You have the scene where Kepka is at the moment of liberation is kind of tied up in the town square and the Czech partisans are allowing mothers to come up with their children to kind of spit on him and slap him. And it's, you know, you're just, of course, you're, you don't have a terrible amount of sympathy for Kepka, but you're also kind of disgusted by the people who would stand in line to smack this pathetic creature. Yeah, it's again an ambiguous scene because this guy deserves it. And these people, you can understand why they are so furious and hateful. But you wonder, is this going to be okay for them later? I don't think so. Yeah. And, and of course, you know in the story that Kepka's wife is mad in an asylum and his sons were killed, some by the Soviets, some by the Nazis. He's lost everything. He has been punished. That deals with the question of justice. The worst of the perpetrators that we see, and to the extent which anybody does, he stands in for Nazi rule, he is punished. But all of these scenes have this ambiguity. There's a moment when Kepke has this chilling statement. This German guy says, somebody calculated scientifically that the life of one German is worth the life of 20 Slavs and the life of 100 Jews. That's mm -hmm. the rate of conversion. That's how much they're willing to exterminate and what the losses they're willing to incur. It's horrible and speaks truly to what the times were and what the Nazis were. But it's also the statement of a guy who just lost his son or his second one. So there's something bitter and revengeful about it, but it's not really the statement of a guy looking to exterminate anybody. Again, it points out that most of these people were not the regime. It's necessary to see that, to understand what happened to Europe in the 30s and the 40s. 
I was especially watching it again, convinced that Rebecca and Jarkovsky were very serious about this attempt to make people somewhat less uppity in their moralism, to make them somewhat more serious about judging morality as accurately as you can. As you're saying, you have to look at the concrete situation. What were the options people had? What were their intentions? People die, you don't know what their intentions were. That's buried with them. And so it has to be reconstructed imaginatively, artistically. It has to be dramatized. And you have to ask yourself, does this make sense as motivation for human beings in such circumstances? And therefore, to investigate your own interiority, to ask yourself about your own motives and your own grasp of what makes people do what they do, what makes you do what you do. It's supposed to make people more serious so that they are better able to make moral judgments. I'd say that at least that is one obvious benefit of having survived tyranny. Having gone through these terrible things, at least you should have a much deeper understanding of human nature. It's, yeah, uh, you know, it's well worth a terrible yeah. price, but that is necessary for any kind of reasonable politics, which would have to mean always look out for the things that are driving people mad, because it does happen. And if you let it happen, the consequences will be unspeakable. As you said, this is not a movie that's relativistic about anything. It's got very serious moral and political intentions, and it's very serious about the distinction between decent people and tyranny. But precisely on the basis of that distinction, it investigates the motives of our actions and tries to show why, although we make public professions of morality all the time, we're not that happy. We don't have a world war, and yet we don't treat each other right. This trouble of human nature is natural. This is who we are understand it better might lead us to understand our own predicament and our relationship to the past such that we do fewer crazy things. In that sense, I believe it's supposed to be partly hopeful, but partly just moderate. Just yeah, I think that's right. Make people somewhat more delicate in their judgment and less shrill in their pronouncements. Well, Flag, I think this brings us to the conclusion of our conversation. This is a wonderful movie, and we could talk about it a lot longer. After all, because we were so concerned with this question of the moral action, we were forced to leave out of discussion almost entirely the wife in the story, Maria. And so we could have an entire conversation about that. But of course, we cannot do everything And I suppose partly because we are students of political science, we tend to focus on this aspect, the moral political calculus and the circumstances historically in which people act and the intentions of artists and do not give as much attention to the wife Maria as well. And I believe it's the kind of movie that does allow you, as you watch it again and again, to think about these characters and to get a more complete picture So I hope that since we have not been able to do everything, our audience will take it upon themselves to watch the movie. It's very enjoyable and consider the other things that we have to leave out. Yeah, I agree that poor poor Maria got short shrift. But um, yeah, there's a lot for the audience to think about with respect to her. The actress is wonderful. She does a terrific job and provides some ballast to Joseph's wavering, I think, at crucial moments in the film. Yeah, the film is wonderful. It pays repeated viewings. I hadn't seen it in probably four or five years and was glad to. And so I highly, highly recommend it. Well, Flag, we should get back to some more of these conversations soon. All the best in the meanwhile, and uh, I hope uh, our audience will join us in in, uh, watching and uh, appreciating this movie. Take care. Take care, Titus. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) 